Good evening, everybody. Thank you very much for coming. My name is Fatin Al-Tamimi. Uh, I'm the chair of Ireland Palestine Solidarity Campaign. Uh, we're honored to have you all uh, coming tonight. Uh, so I'm not going to talk for long. Uh, I'm going to introduce uh, our speaker. Uh, he's fantastic. I, I was at the, his talk uh, yesterday. Uh, I heard him before on YouTube, but it's different when I see him uh, personally. He was like so passionate about his talk. He, he really touched me so hard. He touched my heart that he's, the way he's speaking, I felt, oh my God, he's speaking on, on my behalf. He is so passionate about it. It's really, really, uh, I can't, I don't know how to describe it, but I'm sure you're going to hear him uh, now. Uh, Steven Slater is uh, a Palestinian-American uh, uh, a scholar, and he is um, a former uh, 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 chair of uh, Said Edward Edward Said, Edward Said uh, Foundation in uh, Beirut, and he has uh, published eight books, <laughs> amazing books, uh, and he's a great speaker. Uh, he's a wonderful person to know. Uh, I spent a couple of hours with him uh, dinner and yesterday I heard him and today uh, he's fantastic uh, so you're uh, all welcome uh, Steven Salita to hear him uh, for yourself and uh, then we'll open the floor for questions and answers after that so please welcome uh, Steven Hi everybody um, is, is my voice coming through okay? Should I a little bit closer, is this all right? Okay, please tell me if I start lagging or dropping my, my arm or get too close. I'm, I think I'm just going to stand up and, and walk around a little bit, um, like a televangelist, but uh, hopefully a stand-up comedian. Um, uh, um, allow me to, to, to start by thanking you for coming and spending your, your, your evening with, with me. Um, it's... I know there are a million more interesting things that, that you could possibly do, so I'll try not to make it a, a slog for you. I don't want to talk too long. I'll, I'll try to leave plenty of room for conversation and, and discussion or argument if, if necessary. Um, you know, and, and I, 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 more than anything, I don't want to, to make uh, Fatten out to be a, a liar, so I'll, I'll, I'll try to, 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 to give as good a talk as, as, as I can. And speaking of Fatten, I, I, I want uh, to thank her very much for the invitation, for putting this together, for all the work she's done, um, her and her, co her colleagues in, in, in Palestine Solidarity. Um, if, if you're not already involved in it, um, I encourage you to, to do so. They're really doing terrific work, and it's work, as I'm getting ready to, to discuss in just a moment, that, that resonates far beyond um, Ireland. So I, I, I've been here for two days, but somehow it, it feels much longer. And I, I don't mean that as an insult. Um, it, it, <laughs> And I, I realized earlier today that it, it feels much longer because there's a, a kind of built-in, if abstract, familiarity about Ireland for those who are of Palestinian background and, and who have been uh, involved in the issue or thinking about the issue, which is to say that Ireland, as you all surely know, or you certainly should know, occupies a, a very profound place in the world's anti-colonial imagination. And it, it has a, a very profound standing in, in the Palestinian anti-colonial imaginary. 
You can ask almost anybody in, in Palestine about Ireland, and, and the response will be, you know, they, they waged a great struggle. You know, uh, you know they're good people. They're, they're big supporters of Palestine. And so I remember um, many years ago, the first time I, I went to London about 12 or 13 years ago, I was at a conference whose keynote was uh, Shireen Razak. Um, she's at the University of Toronto. She was... Um, born in uh, Trinidad, I believe, somewhere in the Caribbean, somewhere in the West Indies, or the so-called West Indies of South Asian background. And she was telling me that she first went to London as an adult, but that she felt like she knew it because of the history of colonization, that, that London loomed large as, as a sort of space that they were made to be familiar with. Its tropes, its mannerisms, its, its street names, its architecture, that, that when she arrived in London, she felt in a strange sort of way that, that she knew it. And something similar, I think, has, has happened to me, and as it probably does for a lot of Palestinians who come into this country vis-a-vis -vis Ireland, although from a standpoint not of antagonism, but of solidarity. And I had, to be quite honest, uh, really high expectations of, of the place and of its activists, and, and those expectations have, have far exceeded uh, what, what I ever could have, have imagined. At the, the, the conference that Fatin mentioned, um, and in everyday conversations, I'm hearing really amazing analyses of what it means to be involved in struggles for justice, what it means to be an advocate of decolonization, what it means to make connections across borders and what kind of potentialities exist in those connections. And I swear there are so many points in my life, I'm sure that this is familiar for, for many of you, where I just want to give up and just grow a vegetable garden and, and, and live in peace and quiet insofar as that's possible. And part of it is, is because of the social media bubbles that we end up getting involved in, they, they end up either being echo chambers or, or people are arguing with one another or calling one another names. And it's really nice and important to, thank you, to step out into the world and engage with people face to face, to, to be in conversation with them, to, to read and exchange body language. And it then becomes impossible to give up because you quickly realize that we need one another. Those of us in, in Palestine need the folks in Ireland and vice versa, in South Africa, in indigenous communities throughout North and South America, in Myanmar. We rely on one another, not only for moral support, but as we, we constitute sites of reinvigoration for one another. Pardon me. So I'll leave Ireland in two days feeling reinvigorated, having learned a ton of new things, not only about Ireland, but about Palestine. Having had my uh, imagination, my political imagination, and my ethical imagination expanded in ways that are profoundly useful and in ways that, that will be important to my work for a long time to come and that will influence the way that, that I speak with, with other people, friends and foes alike. And it, it reminds me of, of a talk I heard given by um, Fred Moten. I don't know if you know Fred Moten, but he's, he's one of the, the 
most brilliant uh, black critical theorists um, in, in, in the world today. Um, look him up. And he, he, he worked for a very long time on BDS. And he gave a talk in the, at the prelude to the American Studies Association boycott resolution where he discussed how Palestine for him was an issue of deep importance in and of itself. That there was a reason within the geography of Palestine to take up that cause, but that at the same time, it always provided for him a site of invigoration vis-a-vis -vis the black liberation struggle. And, and, and gatherings like this provide us the, the, the opportunity to invigorate one another in, in such ways. So for the title, it, it, that's basically what I'm getting at. It, it, saying uh, why Palestine is everyone's moral issue I, I doesn't imply, or I hope it doesn't imply, that Palestine should be everyone's moral issue. It asserts that it always already is. That it's our moral issue whether or not it is in our consciousness, whether it is tangible and legible to us. As to the word moral, I, I, I really I don't want to reproduce uh, uh, Victorian notions of, of morality or engage in any kind of moralism, um, and, and I hope you call me out if I end up doing that. Rather, I have in mind a set of political principles to which Palestine is central, and these are principles I'm sure most of you are familiar with, if not all of you. Anti-racism, anti-colonization, anti-sexism, uh, basic human equality, not only in the eyes of the law, but in terms of our relation, social relationships with one another. That it's a principle that asks us to collapse disparities of power rather than reinforcing them. And Palestine, of course, in not, not only in the context of its own geography, but as an issue throughout the world in, in so-called diasporic places, um, it, it really speaks to those disparities of power because anybody who has taken up the cause with any seriousness knows the kinds of consequences that accrue from that commitment. And, and the disparities of power between those who are interested in Palestinian liberation and those who are interested in defending the colonial state of Israel are starker, right? the, the, stark to the point where they needn't even be explained. It's my contention that we can usefully think about Palestine and Israel as geopolitical realities, but it's likewise useful to think of them in terms of how they exist as discourses in actual political spectrums. And if that hasn't made any sense, I'll, I'll, I'll try to explain it in, 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 in ways maybe that, 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 that help. Um, let me not mince words. Wherever state violence exists in this world, Zionism is also present. Even absent actual Zionists. That's the basic principle that I'm trying to put forward. Palestine exists in all kinds of localities. But where Palestine should exist is where, anywhere in the world, where resistance is present. Wherever struggles for justice are present. Wherever movements for equality are present. That is one of our main 
charges as activists, scholars, thinkers, writers, whatever, who are interested in the liberation of Palestine. We want to liberate it, of course, because that is the primary focus and the primary goal. But in that process, we also want to reaffirm a certain set of political and ethical values about the importance of emerging from the horrors of colonization in ways that keep us whole and intact and that are inclusive of those, the many people, who had been marginalized under the social and political structures that were imported into the societies by the colonial power. These are very old ideas, but they, they, I, I want to reinvigorate them vis-a-vis our conversations about Palestine because it is an issue that, that not only has, has sort of taken off, but I, I would say that, that Palestine is, is at the center of so many struggles for justice around the world. It's, it's a profound leftist concern. And in the United States, which is the political terrain I'm most familiar with, it's even starting to, to occupy in important and useful ways parts of the conversation among the liberal left. The Democratic Socialists in the United States, which, you know, um, its founder, Michael Harrington, um, I, I don't know how much you know about this political organization, but Michael Harrington, he was a pretty adamant Zionist. He was adamantly anti-communist, and he kind of started the Democratic Socialists as a way to create something a little bit to the left of the Democratic Party, right, but something that would also act as a bulwark against, uh, you know, the, the, the hardcore lefties running around, and... Um, Think Bernie Sanders in terms of the U.S. political spectrum. Um, he, he kind of comes out of that tradition in, in lots of ways, including the liberal Zionism. But uh, although Harrington, I would, would, would argue, was, was kind of a, a hardcore out-and-out Zionist. But even the Democratic Socialists of America, just a few weeks ago, overwhelmingly passed a, a BDS resolution. You know, uh, we're seeing churches pass BDS resolutions now. Um, and even poll after poll after poll, and we all know that polls can be unreliable and, you know, in various ways. Um, American citizens who identify as Democrats or who identify as liberals are, are starting to more and more identify with the Palestinians. So as people come into an understanding of the issue, it's a serious concern, in my opinion, anyway, that they don't come into it with a localized sense of what Palestine is, but that they come to understand a broader revolutionary history of the movement and the people who have been involved in it and some of uh, the global concerns that, that are attending to it. Zionism is nested in discernible systems of global inequality. Pardon me. We know that there's been a lot of, of activity on college campuses around uh, BDS, and, and, and students have been getting in trouble, suspended, kicked out of school. Professors have been getting fired. You know, it's, 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 it's been ugly, and it's been this way for a long time. But um, there, there's kind of a countervailing power now that, that at least is bringing the, the, the issue to people's attention. And one thing, um, and I've been lucky enough to over the past three, three, four years to travel around the United States and elsewhere and, and, and sort of speak with people and hear what they have to say, a lot of them are surprised that so many university administrators, not only in the United States but around the world, are, are, are so adamantly Zionist. You know, like, there's got to be, a, you know, some pro-Palestinian ones, right? I don't know, maybe. 
But th that's kind of the, the wrong way to think about the question. Because we're sort of reducing their function to their individual political consciousness or their individual capacity. But we have to think of them as belonging to a specific class. Right? And the class interest in this case is very much devoted to Zionism, even if the individuals of that class would not themselves identify as Zionist. I don't know if I'm making any sense, but that's the imperative of that particular class structure right, within the economic and political strata of the United States and elsewhere. This is why when I got fired from the University of Illinois, not a single university president, not a single university upper administrator, and I was, I was looking, really. Like, I was, I was Googling the hell out of this. You know, I, I was waiting for one of them, a single one, to decry, not even, not even to take up for me. I just wanted one of them, a single one, to say that his academic freedom was violated. And that was wrong. Hell, forget about the wrong part. I just wanted one of them to say his academic freedom was violated. Never happened. Not a single one. Six months before, when the American Studies Association passed its, its boycott resolution, which is a big story in North America for, for a few months, and in fact that's what directly led to the firing, but uh, I already went through that last night, uh, I don't want to, to, to bore you to death. When that happened, over 200 university presidents, within a week, had released statements condemning the action. So we're not talking about individuals who, who were... Who were making isolated political decisions. We're talking about people who belong to a class and who are carrying out the political function of that class. And if they don't, they will be punished. So in a sense, you could say the individual choice is choosing career over principle, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean that they give a damn about Palestine or Israel one way or the other. But they know inherently almost instinctively, even though instinct is never actually instinctive, right? Uh, they, they know inherently right, whose side to take. And they know inherently whose side to take because they know who occupies the position of power. And it's endemic to their mentality. Anybody who strives to management, it's endemic to their mentality. They know immediately that if they need to satisfy a particular party, which one to satisfy? And it's always the party with more power. For me, and I hope for you, Palestine means, first and foremost, that when we're making a decision and thinking through an issue, that one of the first things we think about is, is who is saddled with less power in any particular arrangement, and trying to figure out why that disparity of power exists, and thinking about what we can do to help mitigate that disparity, or to be in solidarity with those who don't have access to mainstream media, who don't have necessarily the resources to organize, who are dealing with all kinds of political problems and so forth. But that's not how people who aspire to the managerial class function. They know whom to satisfy. So this is, this is when I say Zionism is nested in, in sites of, of global inequality, we can see that in industry after industry after industry. In what upper class industry are the luminaries openly pro-Palestinian. They do not exist. That's even true of the Palestinian Authority. All right? It doesn't exist. So we have to think about 
Palestine not not simply is an anti-colonial movement or a site of decolonization. It is those things, and those things are critical. But if, if we keep thinking about it, we, we come to understand that it is situated within global class issues, global race issues, situated in, in global relationships of power, and so forth. And we understand Palestine better when we start to understand some of those other questions, which aren't tangential to Palestine, but that are in fact central to it. And by traveling to, to, to Ireland, for example, I'm seeing the myriad ways in, in, in which that's true. Um, and, and I can imagine that if I'm ever lucky enough to travel to South Africa, I would learn even more, and, and so forth and so on. Um, I wanted to spend a little bit of, of, of my time, if, if you're kind enough to, to, to humor me, discussing or maybe uh, proffering suggestions. I don't know. I, I, I don't want to end up uh, being patronizing. But uh, as, okay, let me let me just let me quit BSing around. As somebody who has been engaged in very public battles with uh, supporters of Israel, all right. Uh, there are, are certain things that I've found helpful, certain discursive techniques or, or certain things that, 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 that are probably best avoided. For a long time, ever since I was a kid, I've paid attention to the way that people defend Israel. Right? On, on what grounds? Because from somebody who grew up with Arab immigrant parents who, who grew up thinking about Palestine, being concerned with Palestine, it was just the most obvious thing in the world to me. Like, you know, how there was a people there, they lived there, a people came from outside, kicked them off the land, continues to occupy them, subjects them to military rule, an unequitable legal system. Okay, well, what's the question here? People are always talking about my entire life, it's complicated, it's complicated. It ain't complicated. There's nothing complicated about it. You can say it's complicated only insofar as it's extremely difficult to wrest people away from supporting an injustice that directly benefits them economically, psychologically, politically, socially, culturally, and so forth. That's where the difficulty lies, but that doesn't make it complicated. That simply makes it difficult. But it's not complicated. One group of people dispossessed another group of people. That's it. There's, there's no complication there. We talk about it's difficult to implement a solution or this. Maybe. But it drives me up the wall. Now I'm just complaining about my political pet peeve. Sorry. But no, it, it, it drives me up the wall when people reproduce a very Western notion of political pragmatism vis-a-vis Palestine. I'll give you some examples that I hear all the time, including from people in the Palestine Solidarity Movement or people who identify with it, that Israeli public opinion will never accept the right of return. Or we need to... Exactly. <laughs> we, need to, we, we need to factor in what Jewish American public opinion is willing to tolerate and not tolerate. The right of return is politically impossible. The Israeli government will never accept it. Um, you've heard them all. I, I don't need to keep rehearsing them, right? I keep hearing it over and over and over again. We have to support the Democratic presidential candidate 
Because in order to get elected, they have to take a huge steaming, you know what, on Palestine. Right? Uh, we, we, we have to. No. I don't accept that. And I don't think you should either. I do not accept Noam Chomsky saying the right of return is off the table. Because Israelis will never accept it. Love Noam Chomsky. Noam Chomsky is important. All the, you know, all the, the usual qualifications apply. But no, we don't have to accept that. We don't have to accept Norman Finkelstein saying BDS is a cult and that it's impracticable and that they're sneakily trying to destroy Israel. We don't have to accept Bernie Sanders going so far as to say Palestinians are human. You understand? No, when we, people in the Palestinian American community, were falling all over themselves after, after that. It happened in one of the debates with Hillary Clinton. He said, well, they're human beings. And everybody went nuts. And, and I was like, okay, I mean, that's nice, but kick the internal colonization. We don't need an old white American man to tell us that we're human. We knew that already. And we're, we're not... We're not seeking humanity, or we're not seeking an affirmation of humanity from the colonizer. We're seeking freedom. We're seeking liberation. There is no such thing as humanity without liberation. And this is one of the main reasons why the Palestinians have struggled for so long, why the Irish struggled for so long, why the South Africans, the blacks in South Africa struggled for so long for their liberation. Because they knew that being called human wasn't up to the task of what the reality of liberation meant for their humanity. And this is the kind of, of... ethic that I'm interested in in terms of of Palestinian solidarity, that the point isn't to create a discourse that is affirming to the liberal political establishment of the West. I understand that we need to communicate with people of different political backgrounds, that people have different levels of knowledge. I'm probably in absolutely no position to tone police anybody when it comes to social media, all right? Like, be nice, you know, don't, don't cuss, you know. Uh, I'm, I, I'm really not, and it's, it's probably not a nice thing to do to people anyway. But, um, yeah, I, 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 I'm all for, for, for a conversation. I'm all, all for discussion. I'm, I, and I'm all for meeting people where they're at in terms of their political education. I, I, I knew nothing about a lot of things until people were patient enough to explain the fundamentals to me and point me to other readings and, and so forth. These, these are hugely important things. What I'm talking about is a very deliberate strategy of appeasement in terms of discourse among people with large audiences who are central to these movements who ought to know better. And who are choosing to make a claim, if only implicitly, about their own political respectability, rather than accurately representing the political consciousness that actually exists among the Palestinian people, particularly those in Palestine. And I think it's that consciousness that that we ought to work hard to carry out to the audiences that that, that we speak with. it gets made easier by the fact that if you pay attention to how Israel is defended, and this, is, this was particularly true during the destruction of Gaza in 2014, you'll see that Zionists don't actually defend 
Israel's actions. They don't actually defend Israel's behavior anymore. They defend Israel. They spend a lot of time defending Israel. But they defend the state in the abstract or as an ideal. So, you know, we'll, we'll go back to, to some of the things that were being said in 2014 and that will continue to be, be said during the, 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 the next war of aggression that, that Israel launches, which um, for Lebanese, for, for Palestinians, for Syrians could be any day now. It's always any day now. And that's what it has meant, being a neighbor of Israel. Any day now we can be bombed. Any day now we can be dispossessed. Think about the, the tenuousness of that sort of existence. And, and anyway, um, I won't go off on another tangent. But um, I, I kept hearing the same argument over and over and over again. Like, was anybody saying, really, no, 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 we're not dropping bombs in apartment buildings. We didn't bomb that UN hospital. We didn't bomb that shelter. Nobody was actually saying that. It was a really interesting discursive phenomenon. Right? I, I kind of noticed it as it was happening. I was like, hold on, nobody's denying. The Israeli government is not denying. Their paid social media trolls weren't denying. People who, who, who are defending Israel for free right, weren't denying that these things were happening, that these horrors were taking place. They were fully acknowledging it. Right? Yeah, th those 500 children were killed. Israel bombed them. They simply weren't taking responsibility. And they were blaming it on the Palestinians, on Hamas specifically. Right? That was the narrative of the defense of Israel. And that continues to be the narrative of the defense of Israel. Israel gets protected as an ideal, as something that's sacrosanct, right? as, as something that is beyond critique and above reproach. But in terms of Israel's behavior, it has become, even for the most adamant Zionists, indefensible. Rather, we're seeing a discursive transferal of the moral consequences of Israel's behavior to those who suffer the aggression. Right? Not just Hamas, but the Palestinian people in total, because there are so many narratives rolling around about Palestinian and Arab and Muslim cultural pathologies. Right? And so the children were getting killed. It was the Palestinians' fault. The hospitals were getting bombed. It was the Palestinians' fault. And this is an age-old colonial trope that I'm sure is, is very familiar you know, to, 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 to the folks here in, in Dublin. Right? The idea that the colonizer was pure of heart, always had good intentions, right? that uh, only wanted to bring some civility to, you know, to those backward natives, right? Uh, no, it had nothing to do with resources and stealing stuff. No, 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 no. We wanted to civilize them. You know, uh, give them some Christianity, you know, sprinkle a little Christianity here, a little civility there, uh, improve their lives, you know, build them a railroad or two, you know. And all our good intentions went out the window when we actually encountered the natives, whose barbarity was such that we had never seen before and brought out in us something that we never actually knew existed. It's the old Joseph Conrad, Heart of Darkness thesis. Right, that we encountered the native and the darkness within us was released. That is, if you look closely, and I know it's asking a lot to, to ask you to go look at defenses of Israel, but you're probably familiar with them anyway, because all you have to do is turn on the news. Right? That's what it always comes down to, that Israel is sacrosanct, and the only lapses of character that exist in Israeli policy are fully the result or the fault of 
the native that it was unfortunate enough to encounter and that was silly or stupid enough to have been occupying the land that a greater presence had promised to somebody else. This is the discourse. Well, this is an easy enough discourse for us to work with. We don't have, in other words, we don't have to argue that Palestinians are human. And we don't have to worry about what the limits of, of, of Israeli public opinion are. We can tend to the basic facts of the matter as the basis for creating a strong moral case for equality in Palestine and justice for Palestinians. And it rarely needs to go beyond that. That's why, or one of the reasons why Palestine is everyone's moral issue. It's clear cut, it's uncomplicated, the sides have been taken on a global scale. We see where Zionism operates in corporate spaces, in administrative and managerial spaces, in geopolitical spaces, and we see that it occupies positions of power. This is why it's critical to reject the cynical uses of Palestine by those who are kind of exploiting it for ends of, of anti-Semitism or, or, or some other kind of reactionary nonsense. And there will be a lot of, of, a lot of, of Arab Americans, I don't know if it happens in, in, in Europe or the extent to which it happens in Europe, but many Arab Americans have probably stories of somebody discovering their ethnic background and then sort of giving them a nudge-nudge, wink-wink, you know, those Jews, right? You know, and, 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 and it's like, go away, right? We never want Palestine to exist in the domain of reactionary politics. It can exist there. It has existed there. Right? There are plenty of reactionaries who invoke Palestine for, for various reasons, reasons of anti-Semitism or, or, or reasons of, of, of even fascism. Right? We're seeing it happening on the, the U.S. alt-right now. But we, we want to let ourselves be dreamers and to dream of a Palestine that fulfills some of the most basic but greatest human ideals of justice and equality and freedom. We don't want Palestine to become synonymous with inequality. We don't want it to have anything to do with, oh, pardon me. <laughs> we don't want it to have anything to, to do with a politics of exclusion or with sites of inequality. This narrative that I just presented, and, and I'm well aware of this, is, is simplistic and, and, and binaristic. I know that. But for me, for many of my friends, many of my colleagues, having experienced or having seen Palestinians suffer so much political violence, so much physical violence, the indignities that, that they've had to suffer through, Israeli checkpoints, home demolitions, uh, the theft of land, farmland, the destruction of olive trees, the way that they're brutally mistreated, 
by Israeli soldiers, by Israeli settlers, by Israeli citizens in general. Um, the way that, that some, of, some Palestinian families have been, by now, made refugees three or four different times over since 1948. We ask ourselves, what, what for? And that is a metaphysical question, you know, like, why God? You know, but what for, to what end, or what can we make of it? And I think that we owe it to them to try our best to make something good of it, right? to take those experiences and integrate them into political worldviews that, that prioritize empathy and compassion and that prioritize a loving gesture towards those who are unloved by power. And uh, uh, a, a sense of, of belonging with those who are ostracized or marginalized. And I guess it's so personal to me because I've always been uh, attracted to, to, to those who are on the margin. And for me, that, that's perfectly representative of, of, in a meta sense, what it's been like for the nation of Palestine and for its people over the past hundred years. That it's easy to forget about them. It's easy to ostracize them. It's easy to blame them for their own condition. It's easy and convenient to cozy yourself up to the bully right? and to situate yourself in that site of power and to enjoy whatever rewards accrue from situating yourself there. But if I can speak in morally simplistic terms, that's not the right thing to do. Right? And that's not where we should seek our political satisfaction. Um, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up here in a second. So, so I, I know I've been talking too long. Thank you for humoring me. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll have time for questions and comments. Um, but I guess... I want to proffer a statement. Um, it's, it's a self-serving statement, and then uh, close with a with a with with a story. If if you'll be kind enough again to to, to listen to it, um, I don't compromise on Palestine. I don't. I never will. I never have. They can fire me, <laughs> you know, twenty-five times. And I will never say I'm sorry. You can ask my wife, you can ask my child, you can ask my family. I'm always saying I'm sorry. My, my mother raised me to be polite. Right? But when it, comes, when it comes to defending Palestinians, there will be no apology. Ever. Yeah. Ever. Not to anybody. I don't care how many letters he has behind his name. I don't care what kind of title he has in the government. I don't care how much money is in his bank account. This is not just a personality quirk. This is a political principle. Not only would I consider it an abandonment of my sisters and brothers in Palestine, I would also consider it an abdication of the most basic features of social justice work. I would consider it an abandonment of my Native American sisters and brothers. I would consider it an abandonment of... of my Dalit sisters and brothers, I would consider it an abandonment of anybody who relies on those of us who are lucky enough to access an audience, right? Uh, 
to represent what it is that they actually aspire to and not what the pundit wants to achieve. So the story. And I've wanted to tell this story to an audience for a while. Because my main connection to Palestine is my grandmother, my maternal grandmother, my mom's mom. She was born in in Ein Kerem, which is now a a suburb of West Jerusalem, a a, a mostly, almost exclusively Jewish suburb of of West Jerusalem. It's now kind of a, I I don't know, it's been a long time since I've been there, but kind of an artsy-fartsy place, you know, like cafes and, you know, the the, the kind of place that that the colonized uh, hate with a particular kind of passion. Right, uh, where the liberal elite sort of uh, gather and coalesce, and um, you know, my, my dad is, is is Jordanian, and you know, he, he grew up in the generation of, of Nasser, and you know, he he inculcated me into all of these you know ideals and conversations. A lot, a lot of of of, of people of our background, my age, are kind of nodding their heads. We we all know, like our our, our parents in that generation, you know, that's kind of the thing, you know, pan Arab unity, you know. Uh, but anyway, uh, this, in lots of ways, it's better than what we have now because now we have a a, a lot of, of pan Arab collaboration with Israel, right? Uh, anyway, uh, tangent. Um, I got to put that aside because I, I keep you here till like two in the morning when I get started on that topic. Um, my. my um, well, my, my grandmother got married at the, the age of 14. What happened was my, my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, was in, uh, born and raised in Latin America. And when he was like 23, he, um, he was in Nicaragua. He fell in love with a Nicaraguan woman. So you all know what happens next. His dad said, no, hell no, took him back to Palestine. <laughs> You know, to find a wife, and he found my grandmother, who was who was fourteen at the time. They got married in Palestine. Nineteen forty-eight happened. They got married in nineteen forty-seven. They got uh, uh, kicked across the border. Ended up in 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 uh, Madaba, Jordan, where where a, a decent amount of Palestinian Christians ended up. This is an old uh, uh, Christian town in Jordan, uh, close to the border as well. And ended up going uh, eventually. I think when she was fifteen or sixteen to Latin America with my grandfather, and and. She's the connection to Palestine. She's the one who experienced the Nakba. She's the one who used to tell me the stories. And she's the one whose voice I miss tremendously uh, because she died last year. And uh, she was the only grandparent that I knew. Uh, my Jordanian grandparents I never met. My dad was the youngest of like 11, so they were elderly when, when I was born. And, and uh, my, my grandfather died when I was like six or seven. And I... I remember the first time I went to Palestine. It was, I was an adult. I was a college student, and it was uh, with, with a, a group of people, and we, you know, we were studying. It was, it was, it was the PASS program in Birzeit. I don't, I don't know if any of you have familiarity with it, but they teach uh, Westerners Arabic and courses in Palestinian <coughs> politics and literature. It's an interesting program. And um, so we took a trip uh, once. I can't remember. It, it, it was somewhere on, on the Palestinian coast, and we were coming back, and the guide had his microphone, and he was just sort of pointing things out to us, and he was like, this is this, this is that, this is the other, and then I hear him say, and, and this is Ayn Karim. I'm like, what? You know, uh, this is what? You know, and he said, yeah, this is Ayn Karim. I'm like, okay, stop the bus, stop the bus, you know, and uh, this is a long time ago, so I had like a little disposable camera. Um, it, you millennials in here don't know what the hell I'm talking about, but uh, we still... <laughs> We still have, like, cameras. I don't know. Like, actual cameras. Like, that was the only function, was to be a camera. You understand what I mean? Like, uh, they didn't do anything else. Uh, and, and they had, like, rolls of film. 
He used to take the film out, put it in a black container. He used to take it to the drugstore. You don't know what I'm talking about. And he used to give it to them. And like an hour later, they would give you pictures, if you were lucky, right? And he paid an extra price. That's, that's how it used to work. And there was no place to post them. Right? And so I, I, I got off the bus and I wandered around and I took pictures all over the place. And I went back to the U.S. and I, w- I went to the one-hour uh, instant photo at uh, Walgreens or whatever. And uh, my grandmother was in town and I had a thick packet of pictures. And, and you know, I, I presented them to her with great pride. You know, I was like, you know, here you go. And she's, what is this, you know? Open it, open it. You know, I'm really, really proud of myself. She opened it. And she pulled it out and starts leaving through the pictures. She doesn't know what the hell she's looking at. <laughs> and then you can see it on her face. Uh-huh. It dawns on her. She understands what she's looking at. And slowly and slowly, she puts the pictures back and uh, puts them back in the envelope, folds it back over, and without saying a word, handed it back to me. And I don't know, that moment always stayed with me. I, 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 I felt like a tremendous uh, screw-up in that moment, that, that I'd really done something terrible to her. Um, and I, I still kind of carried the guilt, but I also, after her, her death, came to, to grips with that moment, because I, I understood that she wasn't necessarily rejecting what I had done, but she was telling me something, and she was telling me something important, and that's we don't want to see Palestine in pictures. Palestine for me is not a token of nostalgia. It's real. The place was real. Where I grew up was real. And the future there needs to be real. And it then becomes our responsibility to make sure that we do whatever we can to create that reality. Because it's not going to happen without us. It's not going to happen out of the kindness of the Zionist heart. And it's not going to happen by wallowing in our memories of what happened 60 years ago or 30 years ago or even yesterday. I'll go ahead and stop now. Thank you so much. Uh, We'll take questions and comments. Thank you very much, Stephen. Really, really, you inspired me and gave me strength. Um, seriously, like uh, I have to admit, uh, today uh, when we were at the Freedom of Speech uh, conference, sorry. Um, of course, I learned a lot from all the wonderful speakers that were there yesterday. Today, uh, especially today, but it's strange that they, I'm, I'm not talking about the speakers, they're all good and the speeches were great and powerful, but I felt powerless because when, maybe it's me, I don't know, but I got that the whole thing is telling us that don't fight or VDS isn't working much. Yeah. Am I right? Or there was some of I that. don't know, but I felt oh my god, what's that? It's <laughs> it didn't give me a strength. Uh, I know last night's uh, speech from uh, um, um, 
Stephen was fantastic, and I went home so happy, and I was looking forward to coming this morning to the conference and attend and listen to all the speakers and how he's uh, boycotting Israel and all this. But after the whole day, after each speaker, I felt down and worse. And then I said, what's this about? <laughs> like, what's all this conference about? Like, I know it's it, it meant to be good, but I didn't feel that. It could be me. I don't know. It's, this is my personal view. But I felt like, for God's sake, how can we fight? If it's BDS, we're saying BDS is the one, is the easiest, it's the simplest thing to do. But they're fighting us so much. So... But we have to keep the fight. And now, listening to uh, Stephen again, he, I felt he's recharging me. <laughs> I felt more powerful. And I have to echo him about the dreams, that we are dreamers. I, uh, probably me, I am a dreamer. And we do, I know lots of Palestinians who are dreamers. We dream of a free land. And we, fr we, we dream of our freedom. I dream to, to go and see my nieces and nephews in Gaza, which they couldn't make it this summer with my daughter's wedding. They couldn't come, unfortunately. Although two of my nieces were supposed to be the, the bridesmaids, but they couldn't make it, unfortunately. They, do, they got their dresses and all, and they, they were waiting the waiting list for the number 17,000 something, and they were nearly there when the uh, Egyptian uh, Egypt decided not to open the uh, Rafah crossing anymore and just to close it and they just lost the hope. But unfortunately, they didn't come at the wedding, but we still will keep the hope, we'll keep the fight. And again, I'll echo um, uh, Stephen again with another thing, which he, sa he said that we need each other and we need you to support us. We need you to stand with us, to help us fight this. Palestinians in Palestine back home, they really, really appreciate your support and they really appreciate what you do for them. Uh, you can't, I can't describe how they'll be delighted and uh, how great they feel when they, they know that, oh, look at the Irish people supporting us. For, for people uh, helping in the uh, island for installed, when these people look at my pictures in Palestine and see these people like uh, Martin, Jem, and Dave, and all these people, great, wonderful people, standing in the, uh, on the Grafton Street or O'Connell Street for hours and hours, is it raining or cold or uh, hot or whatever, they'll be there just to raise awareness and talk about Palestine. Really, really appreciate this and we need you. Keep, keep the fight, keep the strength. And I was re I'm really, really delighted to see all this number as well. This is giving me boost as well. We have so many people tonight. So thank you very much all for coming. Thank you very much, uh, Stephen, thank for you. this. Thank you. Uh, great. We'll open the floor for questions and comments. And, uh, um, I, I don't know if you're aware, but in the north of Ireland, there's this uh, really stupid thing that happens where um, in the uh, communities, in the Catholic communities, they've always supported Palestinian cause and yeah. they've always thrown their flag. And uh, in the last 10, 15 years, the Protestant community has put up Israeli flags. Yeah. In more of a, a hate thing to, to anything else. But like, my, my, my question has got to do with America. So uh, at the moment, America is in, in a bitter war between left and right. So the right is so pro-Israel, and now the left has 
started to open their eyes to what's happening to Palestine. So do you think that Trump's a really, really good thing to, for people of Palestine because it's actually opened the eyes of Okay. Um, is, is this one working? Yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, thank you for coming in for the, the, the question. Yeah, I'm, I, I've, I've been told many stories about uh, the competition of the flags in, in um, Northern Ireland. And, and it, it, yeah, it, it, it's, it's striking how, again, I, I, don't, I really don't want to become a moralist or, or reduce things to simple black and white things, but it, it, it's, it's quite amazing the way that, that, that these paradigms reproduce themselves so seamlessly in different parts of the world. And understanding those connections, uh, I, I think, in a sense, makes our, our, our task easier. You know, we, we, once you start uh, understanding it, you see it, uh, you see it everywhere. But uh, in terms of, of the politics of the U.S., I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know that they're, um, they're not quite as clear-cut. There, there are some surprising uh, alliances, and that's one of the reasons that, that I took a moment to sort of warn against... Uh, Palestine becoming a, 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 I would call it a fetish of, of uh, this emergent fascism right? uh, that, that, that we're seeing now, the alt-right, they, they call themselves, hey, you know, that's kind of a euphemism for neo-Nazi, yeah. really, you know, they're racists. Um, David Duke uh, is an old, old figure on, on the white supremacist right in the United States. Is, is, he calls himself a huge champion of the Palestinians. Right? He's, he's very pro-Palestine, not because he cares about Palestinians, but because he hates Jews, right? Uh, you know, so the, these these alliances are are, are, are strange, and, and and sometimes people can be people on the right in in America and elsewhere can be motivated into professing to support Palestine. Not from an affirmational sense, but, uh, uh, but because they, they dislike who they perceive to be the enemy of the Palestinians or the Arabs or of the Muslims, which is, by the way, false. Right? The enemy of, of the Palestinians are Zionists. And that is a label that knows no exclusive religion or ethnicity or race or, or class or anything else. It's an ideology that we are opposed to and anybody who carries out and performs that ideology. And so with, with uh, somebody like Donald Trump, everybody in, in, in the lead up to the election, and then particularly in the period after he won the election and when his inauguration in January, there's maybe, what, a, a two-month period, a, a, an eight, nine-week period between the election and the inauguration, there's all kinds of speculation about what he's going to do with his foreign policy. You know, um, I was in, in Lebanon at the time, and I heard more than one person tell me, you know, he's really going to embarrass and humiliate the, uh, the Gulf rulers. Uh, wrong. Right? Uh, wrong. You know, I, I know that you were hoping at the time, you know, that, that he would humiliate the Saudi king and, you know, no, didn't happen. We thought, uh, you know, uh, maybe he wouldn't be so quick to bomb other countries. Wrong. Right? Uh, wrong. And in fact, in fact, you surely are aware of this, that, that the only time the only time, it's happened twice, there are two times, that Donald Trump has stopped being ridiculed by the media elite in the United States and started being spoken to with respect. And both of those times he dropped bombs. That's when he became presidential. That's when Donald Trump was fit to lead. That's when Donald Trump finally made sense. Right? Really, the rest of the time it's, it's, it's ridiculing of the buffoon and blah, 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 which I don't think is a particularly useful politics. I mean, 
it makes us feel better, but uh, it's really, really not accomplishing much. But we have to understand, when we think that, that Donald Trump, when people were speculating, but, but because by force of his personality that he could make these extraordinary changes, for better or worse, in terms of foreign policy, we are in a sense also failing to understand the structural conditions in which the president operates. And the president is beholden to lots of powerful parties, even somebody as egomaniacal as Donald Trump. Right? Donald Trump learned early not to insult the military brass and not to blame military failings on them. He learned early that if anything's going to get him removed from office, it's pissing off the military. Right? So he's in pocket there. Right? Donald Trump also has obligations, like any U.S. president, to to the 1%, for lack of a better phrase. Not only does it have an obligation to them, right? This is, you know, this is his core constituency, right? These are his people. So Do Donald Trump has tried his best to, to be an individualist right, in his position as President of the United States, but Donald Trump is, is also constrained by structural limitations on the presidency, but has also not shown any particular inclination right, to do anything that wasn't already endemic to U.S. policy and U.S. history in the first place. So I would never put hope really in any individual U.S. president. When it comes to Palestine, I didn't put hope in Obama. I knew that he was going to be a huge disappointment on Palestine. Right? I knew based on what he had said, that even if Bernie Sanders had won, that on Palestine, he would have been a huge disappointment. Right? And then you saw him on Al Jazeera Plus two months ago saying the most cliched, vile Zionist talking points you ever imagined, and he didn't even win. He was trying to ingratiate himself to the democratic power structure. There are structural problems. So I, I think of Donald Trump vis-a-vis -vis Palestine more as a, a, a curiosity than anything else. But the only people that the man is inclined to listen to anyhow, supposedly, are his daughter and her husband. And her husband is an absolute Zionist fanatic. I'm talking about uh, Kushner, is that his name? I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping he goes to jail. But uh, I'm a prison abolitionist, but uh, when it comes to people like that, I'm always like, oh, let, let me rethink. I'm a... I'm 99% a prison abolitionist. Uh, there's 1% one, 1 of people you can, you know. So, you know. Anyway, uh, but th th yeah, that, that, I know a long, long uh, uh, convoluted answer. And let me, let me wrap it up. That I, I think that even if Donald Trump were compelled for moral or political reasons to act against the status quo vis-a-vis -vis Palestine, he would not be able to do it. That we're the ones who have to engage the issue, right? The Palestinians first and foremost, right? And those in support of them, that it is an issue that needs to remain in the grassroots and we cannot rely on any savior, especially from the Western states to come and liberate Palestine because no matter how good they are, they're not going to, yeah. Any other questions? And I, I saw that there was like a poll of young people in America where they had hugely different um, opinions about Israel and Palestine. And I think the Israelis were freaking out because um, uh, they 
think Palestine is a lot better? Like, do you think that is there a kind of change happening in the United States? And if so, um, do you think that that will, uh, like, you know, is 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 the is, is um, Israel very like you know the United States relationship with Israel is that um, you know if, if that changes, you know, what effect would that have? Okay, uh, thank you. That's 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 a wonderful question. I appreciate it. Um, I, I could go on for a, for a while about this. Um, yeah, I think I, 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 in the U.S., um, public opinion is is we could probably say empirically shifting against Israel, especially among younger demographics. There's no doubt about it. There, there was a really funny moment. Um, it was in the conference today where uh, somebody was pointing out that. Um, there was like this, uh, there's long been kind of a Zionist effort to, to educate young Jewish Americans about Israel, but that uh, the more they learned, actually, the less they, they liked it. Right? And so it kind of, it's true, and it backfired. And poll, poll after poll after poll after poll shows that so called millennial Jews, the so called for the millennial part, by the way, don't, don't misread me, uh, Jews of the so called millennial generation either just don't give a damn about Israel one way or the other. They're wrapped up in, in their own issues, right? Or, or that they would identify very often to a strong degree as anti-Zionist, or at the very least opposed to the occupation. And th- these are in increasing numbers. Um, and, and these are indeed uh, hopeful signs and important signs. And, and I, I, you know, any of us who has worked in the United States and, and probably here anywhere around the world has, has, has probably been lucky enough to, to have worked within a, a multi-ethnic, multi-confessional coalition of, of activists, and you know how wonderful and how affirming that sort of thing can be and, and how hopeful that sort of thing can be. So these, these, I welcome these polls, but at the same time, I don't like to get too hopeful because while there is tremendous power in public opinion, there definitely is, and there is tremendous power in people's willingness to, to organize or to, to join a movement or to become part of an issue or to identify with, with a particular outcome. All of these things, there's power in all of those things, real legible political power. But within the institutions that are controlling who gets access to mainstream media, who gets the prestigious academic posts, who gets the promotions within the corporate world, Right? Who, who gets the political money, the electoral money, right? there's still largely a pro-Israel consensus. Right? And so I, I would imagine that this disparity right, between, I don't know, to put it in simplistic terms, what the people want and what the powerful want will, will eventually give. But I kind of think that, that we have plenty of examples throughout history where the powerful continue to not give a shit what the people want. Right? And, and, and no matter what public opinion says, that they can continue doing what it is that they want to do until they, they are given a compelling reason not to. And, and, and I, I don't think we're anywhere near that tipping point yet, but it does show that the, the old narratives about an atavistic Jewish connection to the Holy Land right, doesn't seem to have, at this point anyway, an intergenerational sway, at least in the United States, and that a lot of young Jewish activists and intellectuals and, and, and writers are very much interested in, in not in recovering 
a mythology of the Holy Land, but are very much interested in recovering what they see rightly as particular and long-standing Jewish traditions of social justice. That is more interesting to a lot of them than, than, than the idea of, of national rebuilding, right, or nation building, as, as, as it was called, colonization by another name. And I saw this, and my, my fr- great friend and colleague, Heike Schoten, who's over here, she, she worked, she's hiding behind a pole over there. Uh, this, uh, I, I think she was at, at the ASA in, in late 2013 with me when the resolution was getting debated, and this was probably like a, not a nice thing for me to observe, but well, now that I've promised you something inappropriate, I guess I kind of have to deliver, don't I? Uh, like, uh, you're going to say something mean. No, I'm not. Well, you have to now. Uh, but no, it was... The, I, I, I always go back to the visuals of the debate. There was a, a panel in which... Uh, uh, I was actually speaking on it. Uh, Angela Davis was on it. I was one of the, the, the panelists. Uh, Kehalani uh, uh, Kanaka Maoli, or Native Hawaiian activist, was on it. It was a really great panel. There were like, you know, 600 people there. Uh, you know, my wife was like, give me a picture with Angela Davis. Give me a picture with Angela Davis. And so I was like, hi, Dr. Davis. Can you, you know, can you take a picture with my wife? You know, it was, it was, it was one of those moments. And... And she was completely cool about it, you know. Like, of course, you know, like, you know, she's probably done it like a million times, literally. But, um, but there was this, this discussion, this association-wide discussion. And it was remarkable, the optics, the optics. The, there was a group, really, like, I, I, maybe Heike remembers it differently. Maybe I've romanticized it in my mind. But there was a group of, like, 10 or 12 people who were, who were like, sort of standing for Israel or taking up for Israel, right? And... and they were all either retired or senior scholars, and, and they were like sort of trotting out arguments that, that might have been compelling to an academic audience 30 years ago, but that even with people who weren't necessarily sympathetic to Palestinians would have very little resonance. And, and I, I kind of see the, the generational differences of politics as, as something that... that uh, provides a, a positive or an optimistic outlook towards Palestine. But at the same time, we don't need to, to delude ourselves and we have to understand that sometimes, depending on where they're positioned and depending on how much influence they have, right, those 10 or 12 anachronistic people can shut it all down. Right? That, that's all they need sometimes. Thank you, Sam. Uh, here? Yeah. yeah. You said something very powerful in the beginning. Oh, yeah. hi, hi. <laughs> uh, about, you know, um, how Palestine is supposed to be inherently everybody's issue if you're on the side of people who are dispossessed and marginalized. And it is very powerful to universalize the uh, idea of Palestine and Palestinian struggle thereby. My question to you is that when you universalize Palestine, do not run the risk of it getting engulfed in larger narratives about so-called Middle Eastern brutalities? And yeah. if so, then how do you prevent that from happening? Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, that that's a, a, it's a terrific observation and and a, a terrific way of framing the question. And yes, I, it, it does run that risk. It obviously does. Uh, you wouldn't have thought to ask the question if it didn't, right? Uh, <laughs> so, um, it does run that risk. Um, I've, I've, I've done a, a, a lot of, of comparative uh, scholarly work back in, in my prior life as, as, as an academic um, around uh, issues of decolonization in, in, in Native American and, and, and Palestinian societies. And it's, it's been especially difficult 
because we know that we can't talk about Palestinian society as as a, a singularity or as a as a or as a a collective, right? That uh, it's dispersed. That there are class differences and political differences, and you know, so forth. You know, there are differences between the citizens of, of Israel and, and those who live in Gaza, and so forth and so on. Right? Those in the diaspora, and it's even more complicated vis-a-vis uh, native communities because uh, th- these are, these are not actually communities, and they're not tribes; they're nations, they're national groups, right? And and there are over a thousand of them. So we we always run that risk. And one way that that I think the the, the, the problem of analytical overextension and the, the, the collapsing of specificities might be mitigated is, is by taking the time both to produce and to read close analysis. And I know that sounds like a, a, a silly answer, but I'm, I, I still cling very deeply to the idea of the rich, well-written political essay that's too big for Facebook, way too big for Twitter. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes people will tweet like a consecutive 200 tweets, right? Uh, have you ever seen that? Uh, you know, and, and they always end up getting broken up because sometimes I try to read them and then it like hops from 47 to like 82 and I'm like, what the hell happened? You know, like, anyway, uh, anyway, uh, but no, like, uh, it, it, to be analytical in our politics, because I do believe that it is possible to both universalize, simultaneously to universalize and localize a set of, of political conditions that we, we, we don't, even though we can talk about political morality in the abstract, it doesn't mean that, that, that we, we necessarily prevent ourselves from simultaneously discussing political realities, right? uh, geopolitical realities in, 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 in the physical present. And I guess what I'm trying to say is that, that there is plenty of space to make a rhetorical case against a rhetorical case for positioning Palestine in a particular spot on the global political spectrum while simultaneously understanding the needs and challenges and disparities that exist within Palestinian society itself. Um, I didn't focus on on the latter tonight, and and I generally try not to focus on it. I see my role as as a polemicist in the Anglophone world. You know, that's kind of what I do. I, I'm not. Uh, I'm not a political scientist. I'm not a, a geopolitics analyst. I, I don't write pieces about uh, you know uh, this gambit by Hamas and this move by the PA and you know these these sorts of things. You know, those things are very valuable. I just I, I'm just not good at it. Uh, I, I'm really good at, at, at aggravating Zionists. Quite honestly, like that's that's like so you know I, I stick to the talents that that, that, that I have and and, and, I, and I sort of go with that. But but I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm talking around and around. I'm going to close it up. But um, there there. There is, there is space for, in our discussions, in our conversations, in our politics and in our organizing, for all of these things to happen. Right? And, and for us to think richly and to think deeply, right? and, and to understand richly and deeply what, what other people right, within these communities are saying. Thank you. Yeah, we have a question there. Yeah.
Um, yeah, thanks for your talk. I think I would pick up uh, the last point that you were making uh, and I could uh, shape it to something interesting that you were referring to before. Um, what do we do with these reactionaries taking up, you know, flags for Palestine and we find them suddenly on our uh, demonstrations, be it in the US or Germany where I'm from or wherever, you know? Um, so you have all this variety of people from like uh, neo-Nazis, I mean, sometimes they have Israeli flags, sometimes they have you know, Palestinian flags, just don't really know what to do with these people, yeah. um, to, to other kind of um, fundamentalist people who are, you know, uh, telling, um, I don't know, we had this situation in, in Germany a couple of times where people were telling some women that they had to cover up to be able to, you know, show their solidarity with a, uh, a fundamental Islamic cause, and we were like, oh, okay, no, we, we don't agree with that. You know, we can work side by side. You're know, thinking of our thing, but you know, our case is Palestine. So, um, just maybe some ideas from your side, like because you have been facing this in the U.S. and maybe for us in, in Europe to learn a bit from that. How can we um, include um, uh, struggles uh, for justice and against oppression okay. on all kinds of levels uh, into our struggle for Palestinian liberation um, mm -hmm. and? Yeah, what, what is your experience with that? Do you have some thoughts uh, sure. practically on the ground and some theoretical thoughts would help us, I think. Okay. Thank you. Just to say it's 9 o'clock, so we'll, we'll answer this and we'll have one more question and then we'll go. Okay. Is that okay? Well, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, I, I, I wish that... Um, I, I, I wish that we had recorded our conversation on the way uh, to the book club because uh, we were kind of exploring it and, and I was actually quite interested in what, what you had to say, which was much more sophisticated, I think, than, than anything I might be able to come up with. But, but my first thought, um, in, in the spirit of your very good question, I'll, I'll try to give you a proper answer. Um, it, a lot of it is, is dependent on, on locale. I guess the conditions in, in, in Germany are, are specific, of course, to German politics, and then within the localities, within German society, and, you know, the, the U.S. has a set of specific political conditions, but, but the, 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 the same sort of conflicts are there, right? And, and, and the way I kind of read it, uh, and tell me if I'm wrong, is that, that in, 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 what, in what spaces and under what conditions can Palestine be represented, and in what spaces and what conditions should it be represented? And in what spaces, what conditions should we pull the flag away? Right? Um, so the neo-Nazi question, I think, is an easy one. And that, that seems to me to... And I know in Germany it's, it's, it's quite more complicated based on what I learned from you just in the last few hours alone. But um, um, I, I think in Ireland and the U.S. and Canada and elsewhere, um, it, it belongs to this broader question of, of what do you do with neo-Nazis? And there, there's a... You know, in the English language world, you know, uh, there, there's a huge debate raging about it. You know, do you, do you let the Nazi speak? Do you punch the Nazi? Do you know what I mean? Do you uh, do you try to educate the Nazi? And and I I, I mean I I don't I don't have uh, any kind of answer, but I, I will I really because I I honestly have heard compelling arguments in general, but I'm not I'm not I'm not disposed to trade in the dignity and safety of my comrades for some decontextualized bourgeois notion of free speech. Let's put it that way, right? And I, and I, I, and I think that, that concern ought to weigh large. But um, I, I do know that, that the, the Palestinian flag should never fly with them, 
we can't prevent them from doing that, but we can speak very clearly. And I think we should speak very clearly and say, the, the, you know, no, we have nothing to do with these people, right? Uh, in a sense, they're granting a gift to the Zionist establishment who, who wants to portray Palestinians, Arabs and Muslims, right? Uh, really, almost everybody in the Southern Hemisphere who's pro-Palestinian, right? Including the Irish. Uh, I always think of the Irish as at least honorary uh, Southerners, right? Uh, that's, you know, that's, that's a compliment. That's a compliment. It's the only Northern European country that has street cred all over the global South. You know, I know it does. You know, it's true. You know, try try talking up England and uh, you know and, and see how that goes. But anyway, uh, uh, you know, it, it, I, these are complicated things, but it's. This is going to sound so cliche. It's a constant conversation and a constant negotiation. A set of values have to be reaffirmed in the face of what, in my mind, amounts to a type of exploitation of the Palestinian cause towards ends that are in no way beneficial to the Palestinian people if that makes any sense. And so the first question always is, in what way right, is the usage of this flag or this symbol or this issue beneficial to the people who have most at stake in the outcome of the representation? And we sort of think through the questions in that way. I know that, that, that in, the, in the US anyhow, probably the same here, there are all kinds of intersecting and competing discourses and, and alliances. I don't want to speak on behalf of anybody but myself on this, but t to me, there is a revolutionary spirit to the history of Palestinian struggle that really takes shape you know, in 1935, 1936, but existed before that, right? that goes all the way through the 1960s and on into the present. And it's that revolutionary spirit, that spirit of transformation Right. That, that, that spirit of collapsing disparities of power that we ought to seek to maintain and we don't necessarily have to always intervene because sometimes intervention is not a good idea but we at the same time don't need to entertain people who are using that cause towards other ends. If that makes any sense. I just won't deal with them in other words. Right. I just won't deal with them. I don't deal with anybody who, who, who I think is shoddy on this issue or, or, or sort of exploiting the cause for, for nefarious or shady reasons. Absolutely. Yeah, the last question. Yeah, just the last question. Um, the question I was just wondering is, is this, and this may be somewhat out of your realm of experience, if somebody was thinking of going out to um, work in Israel, Palestine, to volunteer in solidarity with the Palestinians, are there, is there a group or groups which you see as being maybe particularly effective or vital at this time that would be worth maybe, you know, volunteering for? Right. Um, I, you know, I'm kind of out of the loop on that, oh, but okay. I, know, I know they okay. exist, and I, I would, anybody who's interested, I would definitely encourage it. Um, there, there's, there's something uh, unspeakably profoundly moving about uh, going to Palestine. Um, you know that, that that that's transformative. That that it's just it's just a, a very very powerful thing to do. And I'm guessing, I'm hoping that that Fatin and and other folks from uh, the the 
Irish-Palestine solidarity might might have resources or know where to point the gentleman in terms of, of trustworthy organizations? We do have people goes uh, with uh, Elaine Daly. She organized threats uh, every year. And unfortunately, this is important, is it? Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, we got uh, bad news uh, Sunday because they, uh, they traveled 37 people uh, they've been doing that. Uh, Elaine, uh, they have been organizing these trips every year uh, for this is the eleventh uh, year this year, and uh, unfortunately, uh, four of them were deported mm-hmm. Sunday morning uh, back to Ireland, which is disgraceful, disgusting thing mm-hmm. to do yes. for uh, for uh, free Irish people to go to visit Palestine. Uh, Israel, and they deport them from there, okay, because for no reason, no apparent reason, just want, they didn't like them, or they knew about the, uh, the Elaine uh, organizing these trips, which is, which is just people, they go for travel to um, to see Palestine for their, their own eyes, so it's, uh, they're not doing anything political, they're not doing anything wrong in Palestine, they're just visiting Palestine uh, and Israel, of course, they're pre- preventing any solidarity movement, any people, any ordinary Irish people wants to go. They are preventing them by this uh, action. So they deported these four people, Elaine and three others of her friends, uh, with, a, with no apparent reason, and they banned them for 10 years from coming back to Palestine. But the apparent mm. reason was because they were with the solidarity group. No, they didn't say that. Oh, I see. No. Uh, we're, we're waiting for uh, Elaine to come public uh, on this, but um, I, I, I can't tell much about it, but all what I know is I was there on Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, to, uh, uh, to welcome them back to Ireland, which is, uh, and we shouldn't be silent about it, shouldn't any Irish person accept that uh, this treatment from uh, the Israelis. Uh, the Israelis are welcomed here uh, with open arms. No questions asked. They come to the uh, airport and they come in freely to Ireland uh, and they come, lo- lots of them will come and abuse us at uh, IPSC stalls, actually. Uh, and yes. for us, any Irish person going to Palestine to visit, they ban them. What, 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 what for? Where, where is the freedom of movement? Where, why? 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 There? I don't. I can't find a reason, and uh, we have to do something about it. Or like, uh, just quick, please. Troops. Yes. at the airport and she told me, listen, we're going to do two trips from now on <laughs> instead of one, and uh, which is great, you know, so, so that's... Yeah, just want to mention something as well. Okay. Yeah, so, do you want to mention something? Yeah. Oh, just do an ethnic one. No, no, just, just that uh, we have contacts in Palestine, and to do some of what, there are summer camps you can take part in. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, there are summer camps uh, organized in Palestine as well. So we have friends here, actually, that are, uh, they left, three of them were in Palestine uh, last week. They came back from uh, Ladi. There, uh, no, sorry, there's also the Olive Campaign as well. And you can go, uh, I think it's uh, October, November, I think, picking olives. And then they, people go planting olive trees. 
uh, in uh, I think January, February, uh, I think. Uh, but but that's that's well organised as well, and and there are websites we can let you know about that as well. And it's a great experience to go and to meet Palestinian people, and it's something you never actually forget. You want to be going. So that's all for us. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you for.